You're listening to This Motorcycle Life, conversations about why we ride. Episode 46, The Best Medicine. I'm Bruce Philp, and thank you for listening. Is motorcycle riding really as therapeutic as we think it is? It's a question some of us might be afraid to ask, just in case it turns out we're kidding ourselves. But what if there's more to riding motorbikes than just fun? What if science was on our side? We're going to meet someone with impeccable credentials to answer that question. And spoiler alert, that answer is good news. Well, there's a catch, mind you, but that catch might just be even better news. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, this. Well, I don't want to let any episode go by without saying thank you for your kind emails and reviews on platforms like Apple Podcasts. The reviews help this podcast grow, assuming they're good, and hopefully, therefore, give a little more to the community. But the emails make me feel like part of that community, and I've been especially grateful for that during the off-season here in Canada. And particularly given the theme of this episode, which has a lot to do with mental health, I hope you'll consider making a donation to the Movember Foundation in the name of this podcast. You'll find a link in my show notes. Whatever you can spare, I promise it'll make a difference. And with that, why don't we get started? Well, the sound you're hearing is the wind outside my house, which I recorded just before sitting down to write this. I thought it might get me a little sympathy, because I don't mind telling you it's been a bit of a tough winter around here. My reasons are the same as yours might be this year, depending on your latitude and maybe your attitude. Too little human contact, too little sunshine, too much time off the bike, and maybe a bit too much news. I know I'm at the lucky end of the spectrum, and I shouldn't complain, and I'm sorry if yours has been worse, but if I'm honest, I'm afraid all that doesn't entirely stop me from feeling sorry for myself. And the worst part, or maybe it's the best part, is that I know exactly what would set me straight, and that's to go for a ride. Anywhere. Just an hour or so of that rush when the kickstand goes up and the road blurs under my wheels would make me feel human again. And you're probably nodding in agreement. That little miracle is something so central to why we ride that it never occurs to most of us to ask for an explanation. It's just magic. So I know a ride would set me straight, but it's never crossed my mind to wonder why. Or at least that was the case before I heard from a listener named Dr. Joe Leondike. Joe is a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force and a psychiatric nurse practitioner who treats service members suffering from PTSD. Joe is also a lifelong motorcyclist, and the more deeply he's come to understand how the mind can heal itself, the more the magic of a motorcycle ride began to make therapeutic sense. When we ride, he wrote to me, we are doing a form of treatment. 
Well, that seemed like a conversation worth having. Now, before you hear this, I need to be clear that we're going to be talking about one way that some people coping with normal life stresses can support their mental health. If anyone listening to this is feeling overwhelmed or in distress, please find someone to talk to and get help from a qualified professional. Nothing you're going to hear in this conversation is a substitute for that. I reached Joe Leondike at his home in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Hey, Joe, thanks for joining me today and for giving me part of your Sunday. Um, I can't think of a better way to spend it than talking about the health benefits of riding motorbikes. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing great today, you know, hanging out uh, Super Bowl Sunday, just hanging out and, you know, getting ready for the big game later today. So yeah, all is good. Oh, yeah, it is a big day. Um, so I'm glad I'm going to be releasing you before the, the fun starts. <laughs> but, you know, so double thanks for... <laughs> making the time. Well, look, I'm, um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I know we're going to touch on some themes that are pretty serious, but um, I thought there was something quite empowering and sort of hopeful about the topic that you proposed when you first reached out to me. And, and you know, that's, um, I think, the overarching uh, ambition of this, this conversation is to kind of touch, you know, those um, happy goals. Um, and I guess we're going to find out how successful we are. But before we do, um, I'd like to get to know you as a rider first. What's your story and how did motorcycles find their way into your life? Yeah, so that's a very long and interesting question. Uh, <laughs> so I grew up in New England and motorcycles were not part of my family. Uh, my parents were actually pretty adamant that we would neither have guns nor motorcycles in their house. So at the age of 18, I uh, joined the military and got a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> that is really how it started. Um, no one I knew rode. Uh, I sort of grew up sort of in that evil Knievel, happy days era, watching the fawn on, fawns on his bike, um, and really just always thought it was fascinating and interesting. Um, but I actually knew nobody until I really like moved out of my house. And then my circle expanded, and I got to know more people and know more people riding. Um and my first bike was a Kawasaki KZ 1100, like mid 80s version. Oh, wow. And it was a great bike. And I, I rode it for a very long time, um, you know, moved around, changed jobs. You know, life was, you know, good and have been on and off motorcycles now for the past 30 years. Wow. And the funny part is uh, both my brothers ride and my dad and my, my middle brother lives in Daytona Beach and my parents moved there about tw almost 20 years ago and they've become more accustomed to the bike scene and much more accommodating about motorcycles at this point <laughs> yeah that's a good place to learn those um, coping skills i would imagine and so you've had bikes the whole time no no adult hiatus like some of us um had to endure um for the most part i have had a motorcycle there have been you know a year or two here that i've um not had a bike but probably the past Oh, easy 20 years I've been continuously riding. Some years more than others, you know. Some day my, my work gets ahead of me and I can't put as many miles in as I'd like. And some years I have a lot more flexibility. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the other half of your story um, for the purpose of this conversation is going to be your professional credentials. Now, you know, I'm you know, creeping on your LinkedIn profile <laughs> 
it looks to me as though not only has the Air Force been your career, but that you've specifically made a career out of caring for the people who serve um, in in that branch. Um, can you tell us a bit about your professional journey? And I'm especially interested in um, in how you came so quickly to that per- the sense of purpose, if I can call it that. Sure. Um, so my um, lack of a better term, depending on what productivity system, sort of my true north. Um, so after high school, I you know worked as a paramedic. I enlisted in the military. I did my active duty time, and then I went into the reserves. So I was working full time as a paramedic. You know, getting my bachelor's degree, and at really life was good. Like I had a great life. Um, I, you know. But then uh, 9-11 happened. And mm. for me, that was a personal um, wake-up call. And I decided to really take all of my training and effort and energy. Um, and I became a nurse at that point because I knew that were, we were going to need nurses uh, on the front line. Mm. So that really um, created that sense of purpose for me about um, caring for those who defend our nation. Uh, I know you do have a sort of an international audience, so I'll try to remember to keep this, you know, it's sort of my story, but it's, it's kind of an American story. Yeah, of course. So, so yeah, so I, uh, I did an accelerated nursing program. I did um, uh, join the Air Force, you know, and I was in the military at the end of 2002. I had, uh, I was a ER nurse for a little while. I uh, deployed to Iraq in 05 and again in 07. Um, I had then moved on and um, trained with some, you know, far forward surgical teams um, and really worked with, you know, some very high speed people. And so my my EMS background, my critical care background really lent to me, you know, working out in, you know, an austere environment, for yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah. And I did that for and deployed for Afghanistan for a few tours. Um, and in 2013, I became a flight nurse out of Germany. So we would go, um, again, still transporting patients, you know, from the um, downrange to the major hospital in Germany and from Germany back to the States. Uh, and it was that sort of at that point I realized, you know, I... I can only do so much individually. Um, and how do I, how do I continue to give back? And as someone has been downrange is how do I, how do I help those who come back? Um, so it wasn't long after my flight nursing career that I, uh, went and earned my doctorate as a nurse practitioner. Uh, and I specifically specialize in psychiatric mental health. And that's sort of the nutshell of how I got to here. And tell me a little bit about the work you're doing now. I, I realize that, you know, this is a sort of sensitive subject and um, we don't need to go into it any further than necessary to make people understand um, where you're coming from, but it sounds um, relevant and pretty important. Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, so as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, um, or what I do is I, I work in a specialty clinic, for example, uh, the example I often use is um, a patient will go see their primary care provider and their primary care provider is sort of your hub and spoke of your patient care. So whether you break an ankle, need a you know, 
endocrinology or mental health, everything sort of starts with your um, primary care manager, your, your physician. And then they send you to specialty care if they can't really manage the intricacies of your disease process. So I work in a specialty care clinic and I work in um, mostly active duty population. Uh, I work with patients who predominantly have uh, PTSD, anxiety, depression, uh, or a whole host of symptoms that are sort of related to those disease process. Um, and I, you know, um, I'm one of two people in psychiatry that prescribe meds. So I have a very, I can do therapy. Um, so in my clinic, we're about like 20 people between social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, and myself. Um, so there's about 20 of us that interact with patients, but I'm only one of two people that can prescribe meds. So um, a lot of times my patients will have a primary therapist, they're doing therapy. And most of the evidence does show that if you do, while you're in therapy, um, being on a medication short term has, has a better long-term outcome than just one or the other. Right. So I'm a big advocate of, you know, prescribing the right med for the right situation, um, but not every situation needs meds. And certainly uh, long-term medication is not, um, there's not good evidence for. Right. So, um, and I think it was in that context um, that, that you first reached out to me and we, we had a, a brief exchange about the, about the sort of similarities between the health benefits of riding motorcycles and some of the therapeutic work that you do, which we'll get to um, very shortly. But it, I, it struck me that I probably ought to ask you first um, to tell us a bit about EMDR, um, which I, I, so I know that's a therapy that plays a role in some of your work. And um, I think it's going to lead us to the, to the motorcycle related conversation. Can you explain basically what that is and when it's the tool you reach for? Sure. Um, so EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So that therapy specifically, what it's designed to do is you are, um, in a, in a therapy program. So what it do is, is you were, you have a sensation. So it could be visual. Uh, sometimes it's just simple movement of the hand and your eyes just follow it. Uh, you can do um, both tactile and audio where you sort of put headphones on and you feel this vibration. And what it's doing is it's to simplify it by creating this external stimuli. It allows your brain to sort of go through this cycle of uh, processing kind of very similar to what you do when you're sleeping. Hmm. Your brain is processing events that have gone on in your life, you know, that day or coming up. And it allows that your brain to sort of work through that in a REM cycle. And the theory behind EMDR is you're, you're essentially creating, while you're awake, sort of that REM cycle of what is going on with you, what is bothering you, what are the stressors that are going on, and how do you um, address it? So in the therapy session, you do the therapy for 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, you ask them how they're doing. And I kind of explain it to be people like, imagine you're on a, on a train platform and you get on the train and the train ends up at a different station. But that you don't know what that station is definitively going to be. Um, you're, you allow your brain to sort of have this sort of free conscious thought to get from point A to point B. And in a minute, we talk about, well, where are you? How does you feel? How does that make you feel? 
then you're like, oh, I feel overwhelmed. I feel saddened. I feel abandoned. Whatever your feelings are. So then it's like, well, now you're on this platform. Well, take that feeling and see where that takes you in for that next trip and allow your brain while you're going through the external stimuli, it allows your brain to sort of um, develop that understanding and comprehension of like what makes us feel anxious. What, why are we, why are we saddened by events? And because you haven't really processed it because some of them are so big to try and process the Mm -hmm. ability to really work through it guided and that's that process right does that make sense yeah yeah you know i tried um i tried to read up as much as i could on this before we spoke so that i I would have some grasp of what was going on and and um first of all it seems like for the people who've experienced this the results can be kind of miraculous um and the explanation that I read that made sense to me was a bit of a cousin of your um, uh, your observation that this is a bit like what happens when you sleep, where the outcome is you take a traumatic memory and you eventually end up being able to store it as an ordinary memory. Um, so that's me paraphrasing something a stranger on the internet wrote. So I apologize if I've got it wrong, but it 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 sort of connected for me because um, it, it it sounded as though you it was a way of getting the two hemispheres of your brain talking to each other. Um, so I'm so far out of my depth now. It's not funny. So I guess, the, I guess maybe a way to get um, this completely surrounded would be to ask what, what are the basic steps that I might go through if I were being treated this way? So EMDR is really good for certain types of patients and the evidence shows positive outcomes. Um, it's, it's, it is one of the preferred methods of treatment for somebody that has PTSD, for example, or any like acute stress trauma. Because what you're talking about is you're talking with somebody who has some sort of level of um, trauma that they've been unable to process. And one example is, is like if you went into a store and the store was robbed, you that's not it's not a pleasant experience, but that is not unusual, right? Mm. But if you went into a situation and it was completely unknown and you, your brain couldn't make sense of it, you would sort of have this cognitive dissonance between the two events. And because your brain is, hasn't made a connection of like, why did these two things happen? It sort of creates this, this turmoil inside. So my patients that we use it, it's not that you have to meet a very specific guideline, but it's usually to help those patients who don't understand why why they feel and what their symptoms are and what has happened to them right okay i think i think i've got um i think i've got the gist of it so so now the question that that you know kind of fascinated me about your original outreach which is how did you make the connection between this physiological phenomenon and riding motorcycles where's the the parallel so the parallel is if you think of riding a motorcycle as and you are you are out in the environment you are riding a um, a motorcycle and it has sort of this smell feel sensation this vibration and you're sitting on that motorcycle and you have to be 
consciously aware of what is going on, but you can sort of have this, like, where does your mind wander during those events? Right. So having done EMDR myself, it, it did specifically remind me of riding my motorcycle, the sort of the sounds, some of the feels that sort of gave that same physical impression. And it allowed me to have that cognitive, you know, th- thinking, free, free flow thinking. So that led me down a path of thinking, hmm, do other people feel that same way? And then you sort of look at some of the evidence of why do a lot of veterans ride? And what you find is that a lot of people, whether consciously or unconsciously, are looking for something that's therapeutic in nature. So in motorcycle riding, is not the only thing that has sort of these this physical benefits. There's, you know fly fishing, uh, horseback riding, all these like outdoor physical sensation where you're trying to do something, but while doing that thing, it allows your mind to free wander and sort of connect thoughts. Mm. So if you've ever ridden a motorcycle and then felt all these past thoughts just sort of occur in your brain while you're riding, um, that it sort of has sort of that same benefit. Um, and really, that's really what I have proposed and continue to work on is is how do we how do we more formalize it? Because something can be therapeutic mm-hmm. to somebody, but if they're not really, um, I don't want to say that it's therapy versus therapeutic. That is sort of semantics. I know some people look at it like there are definitive lines because a therapy should be with a therapist versus something as therapeutic is just helpful. But I do believe that like the skills I give my people are therapy in nature and whether they practice them in my office or they practice them outside, having a, you know, a goal and a plan to come to an end game for them. I mean, I only see them once every week or once every other week, but they're living, you know, 168 hours a week with themselves. <laughs> I want them to get benefits outside of being with me. Right. Um, right, but I I feel yeah. Have you ever have you ever actually prescribed that someone should ride a motorcycle as a as a way to to self self care in this in this context? So I I wish I could prescribe that. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I don't think um I don't think my insurance company will let me do that. But I, I there is sort of that old saying that you never see a, a motorcycle in front of a therapist's office, mm. and I think that is partially true only because in 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 nature we have found our own sort of therapy to sort of help ourselves work through it i think when we talk about people that ride they that there's a a physiological response that they're getting from the the tactile response the that you don't get in a in a cage right per se that you can that you can feel something outside of yourself that is beneficial and, and provides your improves your mental health. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that anyone who does this has got to be, you know, nodding in in agreement and not at all surprised. I think um, 
I'm going to ask you about the the veterans who ride uh, question in a little bit, but um, it's interesting to me that that is often explained as a continuing a continuing appetite for adrenaline after service, and this is you know you've cast it as more of a form of self care, um, and that's that's super interesting to me. Um, I, the the description of the mental state in which your emotions and your um, thoughts are separated just rings thunderingly true. Um, I guess the one thing I'm curious about, although it's not strictly um, on topic, is why doesn't that happen um, when you're flying a plane? I realize not everyone in the Air Force is a pilot, but it strikes me that um, that situation could provide for the same benefit. And I assume it doesn't. So what's the difference? So I think there are some benefits within a like if you're the pilot of the plane and you're you're going through the motion, I think there is some there can be some benefit. I, I won't try to minimize that. Hmm. But I what you what I learn and, and try not to get too medically jargonish hmm. is through all of your senses, all of your senses sort of get funneled through your brain to be compartmentalized, except for smell. Smell is the only sensory input that you have that goes directly to your brain. Hmm. So when we talk about like outdoor therapy, any of the other ones, I think there's a certain amount of external stimuli that with smell um, just becomes associated with either positive or negative benefits. But I think that allows that brain to really tackle it while it's instead of continuing to funnel it, we're in a car or a plane or, other things, you know, sitting on your home, at, at, sitting in your house at home, right. that you don't really get that benefit. Um, you know, and it could be just as simple as gardening. Those those sensory inputs while you're doing something, um, and there's there's decent evidence that there's all these good therapies out there, but there's nothing that really collaborates all of them together. Mm as saying, well, you're outdoors and the outdoors, because I can look at horseback riding as therapy. I can look fly fishing as therapy. I can look at motorcycle as therapy. To me, the thread is that outdoor event has that smell attached to really work past your circuitry system to get straight to your brain. Interesting. Um, I'm wondering, though, so I have a couple of questions to sort of poke at um, how specifically that's true for for motorcycling. And I guess the first one has to do with the people that you're that you work with um, professionally. And I'm wondering if people have different thresholds for achieving that separation um, of of thoughts and emotions. I mean, I I it, it works for me on a motorcycle. I don't think it would work for me in a garden. And I have to think if people have been you know trained to operate at a high level of intensity and a high level of activity that their needs would be even more challenging. Is that true? Um, that's a great question. I, what I believe to be true um, is I believe that you need, uh, you need to find a level of mastery of your craft. Um, so if you are just learning to ride motorcycles, for example, you are a novice. And until you really become like competent, proficient, and sort of moving up to expert, that ability to even just handle the simple techniques become complicated. And you have to spend much more time 
learning like, oh, where in the corner do I take this turn? Those types of cognitive things you really have to, you know, focus on. And right. it's not until you have reached a sort of like proficiency level that you can then move to that sort of have that free thought brain mm. moving. So like I could not fly fish and get any benefit because I'd be concentrating on where do I put this fly as it's going back and forth. Right. Um, same thing with gardening. I'm not a green thumb by any stretch. But if I was a master gardener, maybe I could go out in the garden and still have that benefit. So when, uh, so one of the studies that I really like is by a Dr. Vaughn, who actually, who did some studies on what happens to your brain. But the problem became is that he closely worked with Harley Davidson. So a lot of people don't look at his studies as true evidence. Mm. Um, but what he found is that your if you take expert riders and you hook them up to an EEG and you check labs afterwards, you actually find that their stress hormone goes down while riding. He did, he did this with Olympic athletes. He did it with motorcycle riders. Um, but he specifically stated that he, that he looked at expert riders for that very reason. Because, you know, if you're stressed about getting on the motorcycle, then it's not a relaxing item for you. Does that make that help? Yeah, totally. So that, yeah, that, which makes it even more interesting because, um, I, I, hmm, the people listening to this who are newer at riding, you know, might see this as a reward that lies ahead for them. Um, the ones who are not new at this, I think, um, are going to be nodding in recognition because certainly if I remember my own experience that, that tracks the, the, the idea that I had to have some level of mastery before, um, I could get in that, that meditative zone that people talk about. Um, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now you, in our exchange, you also use the word bliss. Um, and I wonder how that fits into this. So I find bliss. So it's not a very well-defined word, um, just how I use it. Right. But some people get maybe a better word of what they use is the word flow. Uh, some people feel like, you know, they've, they're comfortable. They don't have to think about the things that they're in that, that flow state of moving, you know, with the bike through, through the back roads, through the hills, you know, know what to avoid, you know, have sort of that feeling of joy, happiness while they're, while they have mastered their craft and, you know, working through this is part of, I think what we all learn to achieve, want to achieve is how do we get, better so we can you know relax and be in flow when doing when riding in this right. case right and you hear a lot about people who are like olympic athletes who you know they don't hear the crowds they don't see the people around them they're really focused on what they're doing and it allows them to really you know gain that aperture of what is going on around them more clearly and they almost feel like almost like it can slow down a little bit Yep. That also makes sense. And, and, you know, listening to you talk, um, it, it starts to feel a little bit as if this phenomenon, um, which you use in a therapeutic context also has some mental health maintenance benefit, if that makes sense, or, or, or it, it's, um, you know, preemptively therapeutic. In other words, it's good for us, even if we don't have a specifically identifiable trauma. Is that, is that a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, 
like I know lots of people that ride, you know, they've, they've had a stressful day at work. They go out on a bike, you know, they, you know, even just ride for a half hour or an hour before they go home, you know, that is both relaxing and it's enjoyable. Um, and it, and it can de-stress a person because like stress is bad for you. Um, both mentally and physically, um, it can create a, you know, significant cascade of effects long-term. Right. So finding ways to have, you know, stress in your life and, you know, motorcycling can be just meditative in nature. Not every motorcycling ride will be that way. And it's not the same on every bike, but for me, I find it to be meditative. Yeah. I, and I think I, I hear that word a lot. Um, and, and, and I think, um, what's interesting to me about what you've added to this discussion is that it, it is the idea that there's processing going on while you're doing this, right? So, so meditation, when that word is used in a vernacular sense, it sounds a bit like, um, um, like, uh, escape it, you know, the, the goal is to empty your mind and, and, um, and we've talked about that in another episode. Um, but this adds something to that, that, that you're, because of the way your mind is engaged while you're riding a bike, you're actually processing things that, <clears throat> that, you know, didn't happen while you were on the bike, but can only be, you know, internalized in that way, if that makes sense. Um, I think I've, I think I've fairly stated that, eh? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I and I don't want to say that it's every time um, that, you know, it, it's o- always therapeutic for every bike rider every time. Like, that would be, you know, presumptive of me. But tomorrow, like, you know, there are certainly times when you're out riding that you do allow your brain to sort of make those connections, reduce your stress, you know, allow your body to heal through motorcycle riding. Yeah, which... <laughs> You know, is um, I'm sure lots of people are writing that down for you know to as a rationale for their next bike purchase. Um, <laughs> but but let's unpack that a little bit further. So you, I, I agree with you that it's unlikely that every kind of riding is going to work the same way. Um, and I, I wonder if there are characteristics you can think of that make for an especially therapeutic ride. I'm thinking that you know Tom Cruise on his GPZ and Top Gun is is not the model for this, or you know maybe is I don't know. But <laughs> do you uh, is there a recipe? Um, is there a recipe? So I would. I, I would answer it depends. So as a, as a short answer, I think for, I think it is better off as you are mastering your craft that you can develop that flow state, that it can be therapeutic. Um, yes, I would not find a sport bike relaxing or therapeutic, but I've neither mastered that either. Um, I would, I would argue that a professional bike rider who can, you know, lean and do all those things sort of subconsciously and like work with the bike as they're going through a track where they can, you know, tune out the extraneous effects and just sort of be allowed to flow with the bike. I would actually tend to think that they might be able to achieve some level of, now if they're in a competition, that might be slightly different, but somebody that really has handled, you know, those high level, high speed bikes and they're just, you know, out for a ride, you know, I absolutely think that they could, you know, while while doing um, track riding or testing times, I'm not familiar on all their language, I apologize. Right. But mm-hmm. but once you're at that level, the ability to just like, oh, go do your time trials, that they could absolutely like hit this type of therapeutic effect. 
So, so again, mastery ends up being kind of a, a, a precondition for, for, uh, for getting the most out of it. I think, I think that's part of it. Cause I, I don't think you, if you're, if you, if you get on a bike and you're stressed about, you know, which side is my directionals on, which button does I use, which, you know, do I stop and, you know, what are all the things I have to do with, if you have to do that mental checklist every time you get on, or every time you at a stoplight, you have to sort of run through those steps before they become more habitual. And then you, you're much more um, anxious in the moment and your brain, your prefrontal cortex. And I apologize if I use get too medical here, oh, sure. but your, your conscious thought of like what's going on has to be much more engaged than the other parts of your brain. Right. So, if you're if you're that right at that level, you can absolutely get there. But if those are the things you're thinking of, is am I too close? Do I take this turn? What am I doing? And we all know people that ride that way. Uh, you know, then then they're not getting you know a therapeutic benefit from it. Right. Not that they can't be relaxing and enjoyable. Like it can certainly be that, but they might not get as much benefit in the long run. Um, you mentioned earlier the study that um, had been done by Dr. Vaughn um, and that Harley-Davidson had sponsored. And I was sad to hear that uh, people haven't taken it seriously because of that sponsorship because Lord knows so much medical research is, you know, is corporately <laughs> supported. Um, so I did not read it with, um, you know, with that jaundiced eye. But what was interesting to me was that it seemed to be focused on performance uh, a little bit. Um, and, and so I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about that study and, and the link, if any, to this um, EMDR experience that we talked about earlier. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, so when people are – so let me talk about the study first. So, yeah, so, so Harley sponsored the study, um, and he was upfront about that in, the, in his research. Yeah. So you have to, um, you know, acknowledge that this is that Harley Davidson. If so, because he has a positive response about motorcycle riding, and a motorcycle company funded the survey, the study that there's a potential for bias in a study. Right. Um, it doesn't mean the study is not accurate. Uh, I have an old professor that used to tell me in college that yes, a randomized controlled trial study is the highest level of study and has the most, you know, uh, efficacy possible. But then my professor would go on to say that, like, there has never been a randomized controlled trial of parachutes. <laughs> and we find parachutes to be quite effective. <laughs> right. We never take a group of people up to a plane and say, okay, I don't know which half, but half of you have a parachute and half don't. <laughs> you know, that would be both illegal and immoral. Mm. Um, so, so when you have to look at it, you just have to look at it and say, there's a potential for a bias in that study because a motorcycle company funds a motorcycle study. But when you look at the data he comes out with and he talks about uh, the correlation between other people he studied that show um, you have, when you have increased tension and focus, you can lower your heart rate, you can drop your um, stress level hormones the benefits and the long-term health implications can really be beneficial to people. Um, 
I got the impression that there's a chicken and egg kind of phenomenon here where if you're able to hyper-focus in this way, your performance will improve. But spending more time in a high-performance setting also improves your ability to hyper-focus. Does that make sense? (laughs) It does. Um, So let me talk a little bit about stress, stress in general. So there is, so stress is just a part of life. Um, Stress can either be good or bad, or it could be neither, just it is what it is. But stress has a physiological response on people. Uh, We talk about in healthcare that when you have a a scary situation, you have this either fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, And that response has this sympathetic reaction of you're, you're flooding the body with adrenaline, your eyes are get really big, you're, you're increase your breathing, you're increasing your heart rate, you're like the proverbial, the bears come out of the woods, you're like, uh-oh, or you say other words, and you either right. run <laughs> as fast as you can, right. um, you fight the bear, or some people will freeze in this, this very stress-filled situation. Mm. Um, and probably people that see bears all the time probably don't continue to have that sympathetic response. I've never seen a bear except in a zoo. So if I was out walking in the woods and I saw a bear, I would have this response. Right. For some people, uh, so what should happen is, is the bear goes by, you run away, you're faster than your friend, whatever it is, right? You've escaped the bear. And then afterwards you have this parasympathetic response where you're, you're, Blood all goes to your the organs that were not fed. You feel exhausted. And you can even feel this on the motorcycle. You, you know, have an oncoming car that you weren't expecting. You get this freeze or this fight, like that, oh, poop moment, right? right. And you get out of the situation. Afterward, you feel like, I just got to breathe. I got to slow down. I got to go to the bathroom. Whatever it is, you have this response after the fact. What you find in lots of people is that, the adrenaline rush from that initial response only lasts for a very short period of time. Hmm. The long-term effects of being stressed go into your long-term effect of it's your cortisol system that's getting released and constantly into your body. And cortisol has a benefit like you, you again need to run away, you need to run long distances to get away because the bear's coming or you want to get out of the woods, it's that ability to keep keep feeding the fire to fuel the fight or flee, right? Right, right. But long-term cortisol response has also negative effects. When we look at studies that involve firefighters, police, nurses, EMS workers, what you find is that people that have chronic, long-term, high-stress jobs have more cardiovascular disease, have shorter lifespans, have more uh, type 2 diabetes, they have uh, increased weight, they have poor diets. There's a lot of negative health response. In my opinion, we as a society have become much more stressful. And I think the increased stress on people is causing some of this... Okay, this will be a slight tangent, hmm. but I would argue that because of the long-term stress that people are under, the 24-hour news cycle, the constant barrage of social media, lots of things that are on in people's lives, 
I think people are much more stressed now than they were previously, and they're not finding good outward, outlet reliefs. And because of that chronic stress, I think is what, why you find poor eating habits, higher obesity rates, and a lot of long-term problems, not because of the food, but because of the need for people to feed their stress, their chronic stress that people are under. Right. I see that at work um, and my job in mental health where people come in and they're like, I'm stressed all the time and all I do is eat and I've been doing it for years. <laughs> and you draw their lab values and the lab values are terrible. You know, they're all pre-diabetic. They're all having, you know, heart disease. I'll have a 30-year-old 30, 30 come in and they'll have a heart disease of a 50-year-old. Mm. You know, they're not taking care of themselves. And yeah, food is a problem. I won't disregard that. But I think stress, stress on people and not finding ways to de-stress is a bigger problem. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and so it big, and so now I have to ask you a question. Um, I wasn't going to um, personalize too much of this, but I, I, I can't resist this one. Um, I'm, so when I ride, my reaction to stressful situations on the bike is notably different from my reaction to stressful situations off the bike. So um, if I'm, you know, even if I'm driving a car, if someone does something, um, you know, terrible to me in traffic, I'm going to, I'll probably hold a grudge for the next 15 or 20 minutes, um, you, you know, about that. Whereas on a bike, I'm like the soul of calmness. I think maybe once in nine years of riding, <clears throat> if I had something happen that stayed with me for a few minutes. So now I'm wondering, I thought this was just because I was developing as a human being, <laughs> but now I'm wondering <laughs> whether this is an example of the phenomena you're describing kind of in action that, that, um, I'll stop talking. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I think because, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when you're on a motorcycle, you are so much more vulnerable to your environment. And when right. people invade that environment, you're your stress level becomes even higher than it would even if you did get in a car accident because you're sort of much more well-protected. Right. So your stress level and your stress response to something that is like much more, when you're much more vulnerable on a bike um, would absolutely exaggerate your response to the situation because you probably feel much more like your life is in danger where if somebody cuts you off in your car, you're like, well, I have this, you know, big steel car. Even if they did hit me, it probably wouldn't do significant damage, but I'm still mad. Mm. We're on a bike. You're like, it becomes exaggerated because the danger, the realistic danger and the threat is so much higher. Which, which it obviously is, but, but, and that would, that was the mystery for me is why given that, um, am I able to let go of, um, to let go of, you know, crisis moments on a motorcycle more easily than I, I, you know, take them less personally somehow. And I just, I kind of wonder whether maybe that was because of the state that, uh, you know, my mind is in while these things are happening. It certainly could be like, if you're, if you're in that sort of that meditative state while you are, you know, working through it, the ability for you to let go, you know, can certainly be there for you. So maybe connected um, with that, this is a sort of a half-baked question, which is probably above both our pay grades. Um, but um, it it, it's, uh, it it just kind of caught my attention while I was trying to research uh, for this conversation. So I gather that um, this state of mind and the the effect achieved by EDMR, for example, um, it often requires 
relies on continuous eye movement. I think you mentioned earlier that not always, but that's um, that's certainly a way in for lots of people. And it occurred to me that on a motorcycle, continuous eye movement also happens to be a pretty good strategy for staying alive, um, and most particularly for avoiding um, target fixation. You know, which is kind of about not dwelling on where you don't want to go. Um, and then I thought, um, as I poured my second scotch, um, that feels to me like a metaphor for mental health, this idea of not dwelling where you don't want to go. Um, do you think those things are connected? Is the way we manage our perceptions on a bike rehearse us somehow for doing it in life? Is there a, is there a philosophical common denominator or am I just um, being a nerd? No, I, I absolutely think there's a philosophical common denominator. I think that we that there are things that have people help survive for years and years and years, um, you know, that got us to evolutionary where we are today. Right. And I think part of that is, you know, finding solutions that we take care of ourselves in, that reduce our stress, you know, find find moments that we share with other people you know human connection is vitally important to you know human survival right i think that finding those solutions and helping people is how we manage our stress and if we use it as part of our you know whether it be on a motorcycle or a bicycle or on a horse using that those those still those same techniques like i might use it specifically as a therapy mm. But it can certainly still have that therapeutic benefit as, you know, somebody that's out in the environment using it and helping themselves. And we, we get there through science, what people have sort of almost always done. Mm. Yep, that clocks. Um, so the, the one thing I, I sort of feel like I have to ask, um, it just is sort of almost a more biomechanical question, if I'm using that term correctly, and, and that is about alertness. So some people listening to this might think that, um, seeking this flow state um, w- might result in our attention being divided. Um, but my impression is specifically that it's not, that, that because we're in the present moment is the reason this therapeutic effect works. Um, did, can, I, can you sort that out for me if I got that kind of right? No, that, that, is, that is accurate. You know, so because your body's sort of going through um, almost an automatic motion it's you know knows which way to push the handlebars it knows when to turn the directionals on it knows when to apply you know clutch and brake and you've you've mastered those feelings and that sensation around you so it does allow your brain just to sort of you know achieve a sense of flow and to feel like you can you know gain that better picture Uh, there are plenty of anecdotal stories of people that you know they're riding and they feel like they're in the flow and then a car comes you know, an oncoming car comes in their lane Mm. and they can describe with such intensity, the ability for them to move around the car, you know, what they had to do almost like not without thinking about it, but just having it happen in front of them. Right. Yep. That is so true. Um, (laughs) It is so true. So I have a, you've mentioned a couple of times that this is going to be another personalized question. You've mentioned a couple of times that motorcycling isn't the only activity that provides this benefit. Um, And one of the others you've mentioned a couple of times is horseback riding. Um, And that sort of tweaked my attention because I have had horses and no longer do. I have recovered. Um, 
But I have to tell you, and all of the people listening to this, that I have never been on a horse for one minute that I wasn't scared to death, um, which doesn't sound very therapeutic to me. Um, I was always a festival of cortisol in the saddle. <laughs> so whereas riding motorcycles, on the other hand, doesn't, doesn't scare me, um, unless I do stupid things. And, and, I, and so I do experience that feeling of processing that you described earlier. So I guess these activities, while they may all be possible, um, you know, candidates aren't interchangeable. Long way of saying, what kind of person, in your estimation, does motorcycling specifically work for um, in this regard? Is there a type um, who gets this benefit, especially from these machines? So oh, that's a great question. I think for myself, I want to perseverate over my motorcycle. I want to eat, sleep, and ride. That's all I want to do. And because that's always consciously my thought, or I watch videos of it, or you know, other positive benefits, whether it be riding with my wife, we love these long distance rides. I ride with my friends. Like those, those moments are what I cherish. Those are what I'm looking for. Those those benefits. I've been on a horse. <laughs> like I I want to go out of my way to ride a horse again. I know there is such thing as, you know, and there's good evidence that, you know, if you, if you like horses and you think about horses probably all the time, then probably you get that benefit from them long-term. Right. Um, but I think if you, if motorcycling is just something that's you sort of do, you know, occasionally you think about your bike, like, you know, a couple times a year and that's really, all it means to you, then you probably don't have that same, you know, mastery of flow state that you're getting from it. But if something else does, like, I'm not saying it has to be relegated to motorcycling. I'm just saying, you know, something that you enjoy, that you master, that you can physically do in the moment and allow your brain to sort of think elsewhere is really where you get the benefit. Right. So I don't think there's much more of a person Versus there's much more of like the situation of what, what motivates you to get, get moving on something. And it could be running. Like some people probably get this with running. I would never get that with running, but that's, yeah. you know, people talk about runner's high. I'm assuming that's similar. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny how we keep circling back to, to this idea of mastery. And, and, and maybe the answer is that you have to find something that you love enough to master it. And then you get this reward, you know, if I can summarize it like that. Um, now, you told me that if you were ever going to write a book, um, it would be about how service members returning from World War II found refuge in motorcycles. And I think that's often written about, um, it's, it, it's written off as being the, a need for adrenaline and, and kind of camaraderie, but it sounds like you think it was a sort of instinctive self-care um, for, for PTS, PTSD. Can you talk about that a bit? Because it sounds like a subject you're passionate about. It is. And it's something I, it's, it, it is one of those rabbit holes that the more I jump down, the more I find. So uh, let me give you a, for instance, let's see if I can change a narrative for your audience. So if I told you that the, was it 1940s, 1950s Hollister event happened right. and it was this tragic event, right? There were bikers and people and there were fights and all this, this it was a terrible situation. They made a movie about it and everything, right? Yeah. Well, what if we changed the narrative and said all the people that were in the bikers were actually all World War II veterans who had returned home from either the Asia or Pacific 
or from, you know, Europe. And what if I told you that a fair number of them, actually, if you look at them, probably clearly had PTSD symptoms. And now they're out on their own. They're with like-minded people who also have PTSD. And they're in sort of this situation where the community doesn't really want them. And you have PTSD, you have this hyper- reactive startle response to situation around you hmm. would that change your opinion of the situation if if i told you like all those bikers really had ptsd yeah and in fact it seems like the record shows that that event wasn't as dramatic as the the, the press made it out to be anyway um but yeah i mean it makes uh, it makes a ton of sense i guess the the, the thing i'm curious about is well, how do they f- how they found their way to motorcycles as the answer if that's um, not too simple a question. No. I, I, so I think, I think people find, I think people want to find solutions to whatever ails them. Um, so if you rode motorcycles in the war and you come home, you want a motorcycle. I get that. That's pretty, pretty straightforward. Right. But I think what you find is that you find like-minded people who are also doing the same thing with you. And you build this camaraderie with each other. You build this community based on sort of those values that those events that happen that you share. You share not only the riding together, you share the war together. Um, There's pretty clear evidence that um, really since like the 70s that there is an increased number of motorcycle crashes after wars Mm, interesting Um, there's not great evidence after world war ii the you know the u.s data doesn't really go back that far well right um but if you look at vietnam vets they came home they bonded with each other they rode motorcycles together and there were more motorcycle deaths Mm. i think we can see those we see that same you know statistics after iraq and afghanistan and and I think we find a way to find solutions that, you know, what what provides a personal benefit? What does somebody think about? What calms them down? And what what allows them to like share their experience with each other? There's a great picture of um of a motorcycle rally. I want to say it was Sturgis or Daytona, I forget right off the top of my head. And it has it's like one of these old like 60s or 70s pictures and it's got like the motorcycle hanging up and they're using it as a pinata are you familiar with the picture right or pictures like that yes so if i if i turn the narrative on that and said oh they're just trying to beat up an old motorcycle well if you look at that as saying like that guy was a world war ii vet he was lost buddies in the war against germany and somebody hangs a BMW up in a tree. They drain the blood out of it. They take the oil out. They just <laughs> run it. And he gets the opportunity to release that frustration and vent against it. Right or wrong, mm-hmm. like that's therapeutic to him. So we look at a lot of like American bike culture. Well, at the time, you really had American bikes, you know, Japanese bikes and European bikes. Well, your World War II vets were not going to pick a Japanese bike or a European bike at right. the time. Yeah. So I think I think some of that culture grew out of, you know, sort of that animosity 
towards right or wrong. You know, it's, it's how it developed. But you have to look at those like, you know, oh, I went to war against Germany. Why would I ride a German bike? Right. Just right. like I don't think if you had a v- Vietnamese bike, would you get a Vietnam veteran on a Vietnamese bike? I think there's, I don't think it takes a big study to like make those correlations of really how some of this develops. Yeah, it's funny. There's there's a remarkable lack of empathy in the way those stories got told um, kind of in the middle of the last century. And even um, uh, even Hunter S. Thompson was of the view that the, that the, the danger posed by um, you know the one percent gangs was was not that great until the press said it was, and then they kind of lived up to it. Um, but thinking of you know the roots of that culture as 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 being um, you know post military and 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 maybe a a healing process you know makes it a lot less menacing somehow. It does, and I think I think it's a story worth telling. I think at, at this point, I think we can sort of look back historically and think, hmm, why, why did so many returning World War II vets want to ride motorcycles? Was it just because they liked them? Or was there something more to the story that really makes it healing for them? Yeah. Still on this um, question of self-care, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the, the sort of current moment that we're all living in um, a bit earlier in this conversation, I think. And you know, I think it's pretty clear at this point that everybody's got their own battle to fight. Um, but most of us are never going to carry the burdens of someone who has been to war. Um, and so I guess my question, and perhaps we've touched on this already, is is the therapeutic benefit still available to us, even if we don't have that kind of identifiable trauma? And by that, I mean, not that we have no problems in our lives, but not that we carry the the, the weight of, of of having been to war, but that somewhere in the middle there, where you know a lot of us are just feeling um, you know a bit unmoored, um, is it is it medicine for us? Is this and, and and we'll ask that question first, and then follow up. Yeah. So so PTSD in and of itself is a is a diagnosable disorder that falls within sort of the acute trauma and stress category. And I would be very hard pressed to say very few, very few people have never had any acute trauma or stress in their lives. Um, I think that there are people that um, absolutely have been um, even just physically attacked. They feel emotionally unsafe in their environment. Those are traumas that people experience. Right. I, th- I look at people who have experienced, you know, different, you know, grown up in a sort of horrific conditions. You know, those are, those are traumas that can absolutely be healed, you know, whether it be horses or motorcycles, let's mm. say. Yeah. I think there, there is that benefit there. Um, I think what you need is you need to, you find people who have a like problem, who, uh, who, enjoy the same passions as you and through that connection with each other, you know, and that's why there's like, there's, there are motorcycle clubs that are, you know, veteran only. There are, you know, these 1% clubs, but they're also like black motorcycle clubs or Christian motorcycle clubs. There's different types of motorcycle clubs because what you're looking for is you're looking for someone that's like you that has a shared experience like you that you can, 
do this together with. And it doesn't have to be war and trauma. It can be other experiences that you get a benefit from. Right. And is it something that we should engage in um, mindfully? Is it, is it, is it a, should I, when I, when I go out to ride my bike again, which heaven for Fend won't be too long um, from now, uh, should I, should I look at it differently? Should I do this intentionally or um, do you think it's just happening whenever we throw a leg over? Uh, so that is a great question. Um, so this should probably be the part where I insert my, you know, my medical, you know, please, if you feel like you're depressed or your anxiety, yes. you can make medical, medical professional yeah. at this point. Um, but no, I think, I think if you listen to this podcast and you're like, Oh, I wonder if I should be thinking about it and just sort of see where your mind goes while you're on this, you know, enjoyable ride, you know, and just take thought of it. Maybe afterwards, you know, write it down. You know, what did it mean to you? How did you feel? What did you think about, you know, sort of do some like self-reflecting afterwards, you know, those, those absolutely have positive benefits. And, and maybe the more you ride, you know, it doesn't have to be every time you ride, but as much as you look back and be like, oh, these were, not only was it a great ride, but I, I felt better emotionally afterwards. Yeah. So there, there is good benefit with it, but it certainly doesn't replace, you know, um, actually seeing a medical professional if you have something, you know, serious psychiatric problems, you know, writing is helpful. Um, but writing is not the cure-all. I don't, I don't want to play that off. Right. No, of course. Of course. Um, but at the same time, as I, as I say, I think there are probably millions of people who aren't feeling quite as, um, you know, as, uh, as, you know, much like they've got their keel in the water as they, as they did a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm fascinated by this idea of, um, of, of journaling um, around, of deciding that a ride is going to perform that, that function. And, and journaling around it because I, I have this I've, I have this this kind of um, kind of nutty belief that you know a lot of people think of their motorcycles as being um, you know a friend or uh, maybe as a you know it's a lover or it's a you know it's a weapon or it's a you know um, the usual litany of uh, of kind of you know personifications but the one thing that a bike can do that we don't talk much about is it it can it can be a mentor if that makes sense it it, it you know motorcycles live in a rules based universe and you you um um you'll prosper if you learn those rules and, and live by them and you will you'll be you know pretty roundly punished if you don't um and so there's a kind of quasi-parental <laughs> i don't know if this doesn't sound maybe hopefully it doesn't sound insane um there's almost like a quasi you know a parental or a mentoring role that a bike can play in your life if you let it um that's not a belief that i've shared very widely until now but um i'm wondering what you think about that i absolutely would agree with that i think you have to uh, you have to master the tools in your life to master your life. And that, and that could be woodworking, could be your job. You know, I try to continually master my clinical work. I continually I try, try to continue to read, stay up to date on the latest uh, information, the latest evidence, what is helpful to people. Because um, the more I'm better at my craft, the better I can perform without having to be like, if I can, you know, give you the evidence that supports why we're going to do X number of treatments or why I'm going to provide this level of medication for you, mm -hmm. I think people will find that 
beneficial that I've learned that much, that I've cared enough about them, that I'm trying to provide that level of care. But I really have to master my craft. And my motorcycle is no different. Um, you know, or if I was like, try to learn how to, sh- to you know, sail, I would probably need years of mastery to, to get to that level of like, could I, could I master this boat? And by doing so, that would allow me to have some to benefit because it will, a boat will buck against me if I'm not doing it correctly, if I'm not smooth with my sails or, you know, not that I know next to anything about sailing, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So, so you would, you would, if I sort of said, um, if you have a motorcycle in your life and you're a competent rider, um, it's not, it's not madness to imagine that, 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 that your relationship with that machine might help you uh, find your way out of this difficult moment we're in, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, every, every bike has its own personality and it, you have a relationship with it and you, you work with them together to, to find ways to find solutions, you know, both out of the moment and through life. What kind of role, um, you've mentioned riding with other people a couple of times and, um, and I know that you, um, you, you ride recreationally with a group. How big a factor is having companionship um, in, in, in sort of achieving these benefits? Is, it, is that really important? I think for some people, some people it has a benefit. Um, I've probably done most of my riding with my wife and that is a, you know, a shared bond that we have. I think that's, that has made us closer and has allowed us to like, you know, share the silly little moments that you, that you might not notice otherwise. Um, we've ridden in most of the U S states. We actually had the opportunity to ride a fair amount in Europe when I was stationed over in Germany. So, you know, we, we've had lots of like fun memories of, you know, this motorcycle ride or that motorcycle ride. Um, Riding with a club, having riding with people who have sort of been where you've been. You, you know, I ride with a, a group of veterans and, you know, we ride together and, you know, we also make fun of each other. You know, it's, it's a camaraderie that you get with a, you know, like-minded group. It, there's a, there's a positive long-term benefit to any social interaction um, I think having friends is important. I think having, you know, personal connection is important. I think social media is fine. I'm not opposed to social media, but I don't think it it provides, I think we constantly crave personal interaction and social tools are nice, but they never give you that same satisfaction as an in-person friendship. Yeah, that makes sense. Um and I, so I guess, you know, I guess if you, if you can't, if you don't have people like that in your motorcycle life, you're, if, if the goal is a, is a therapeutic ride, you're probably better off to ride on your own. I certainly find if I'm with a group and especially if I'm leading a group, I'm way too focused on everybody else's welfare to, to kind of get into the zone. Um, so that's interesting. I, unless you take issue with that, um, with that, with that, uh, Pracy, uh, that makes sense. If you've got like-minded people to ride with, then you can, you can heal while you're out there. But, um, but if not, then 
and maybe you're just as well in your yeah. own company. But even when you're even when you're riding with friends, you know, you are still in your own head. You are still you are still doing your own ride, even if you are in a group of people. The person riding next to you doesn't is not sharing the same emotional cognitive load that you are at that moment. They might be having a good day. They might just be enjoying the flowers and the scenery, or maybe they have their own demons that they're working through. You know, we each ride our own ride. Right. Um, I think having having people to share, even just after the fact, it doesn't have to be riding in a group, but having friends who talk about motorcycles afterwards. Or you, you never ride together, but you meet up at groups or you meet up at, you know, a local bike night and you meet fellow friends that ride. And, you know, having, having people that you have something in common with is really more of the key of like, how do I, how do I share something that's important with me? How do I share it with other people? Right. And it doesn't have to be riding together as much as sharing together. We, um, a little while back, maybe a bit over a year ago, um, I interviewed a Buddhist monk who rode, who had, who had been a motorcyclist and we were talking about meditation and the similarities between the experience of riding a bike and the experience of meditating. And I asked him, um, you know, whether he thought motorcyclists should meditate and he rather graciously answered that they already are, um, which I thought was generous, but um, it sold the idea of meditation short because I don't know if you've ever attempted it, but it's, um, you know, it's not as simple as closing your eyes. It's, it's hard work, right? Which I kind of think um, this might be too. You, you talked about, um, earlier you, you talked about um, creating a neurobiological environment that allows for the separation of thoughts and emotions. That's a, a quote, which sounds to me like a skill. So the question is, can we get better at this? Can it be a skill? Let me start with that was a great interview. I really enjoyed that interview you did with him. Um, so, Thanks. yes. So, yes, becoming more aware, just even just simple meditation is hard. Um, and mastering a motorcycle is hard. These are hard work. You know, it, it's how well do you want to improve? Do you want to get better at these events? Do you want to... You know, how, how can you, you know, improve yourself? And it's only through hard work do you actually achieve it. Um, there's that sort of random quote of like 10,000 hours to mastery of something. And I think that is in some ways oversimplified because uh, really to master something is to be, to be practicing and get better at it. Just doing the same thing over and over 10,000 times is not mastery. It's just doing the same thing right. 10,000 times, yeah. but, you know, trying to in, actually improve yourself and improve the way you do it and being, you know, trying to do something better 10,000 times is really a much better indicator of doing something. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to, I'm, I'm, I'm still a little bit, I'm, I'm still a little bit fascinated with this idea of, of creating the ideal conditions for a ride. And so maybe we've covered this uh, sufficiently, but let me poke at it a little bit longer. You, earlier, we, we, you talked about, um, I actually asked you about what makes a, a, a healing ride. And, um, and when I think about the way that I ride, typically, it probably qualifies, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm in a, I'm in a state where I, I feel like I can, experience that that flow 
that we described earlier. But an exception might be when I do my annual embarrassing track day, for example, where my conscious mind is 100% occupied with not screwing up and there's not really any room for anything else except kind of not dying or wrecking my rented leathers. <laughs> and I imagine people who, <laughs> who ride single track, uh, you know, technical um, off-road riding would, would say the same thing or any kind of racing. And, and I guess earlier I said, you know, can they can those things possibly have the same effect? And I think your answer was essentially that it depends on how well you've mastered the, you know, the particular activity you're talking about. And that for people like me who are doing it uh, as a change of pace, probably not. But for people who do it all the time, then then probably yes. So all, all of which seems to circle us back to this idea that mastery is the, is the necessary, a level of mastery is a necessary condition. Is there any benefit, therefore, is there any mental health benefit to us putting ourselves in situations where we're outside our comfort zone, where we're pushing to the extent that there's nothing in our minds except the immediate moment we're in? Yes. So I, I've never been on a track, so I couldn't use that as an example. But let me use the example of rain. So I've done enough riding in the rain that I am comfortable riding in the rain at this point in my life. Right. I have, but I remember when I would, you know, there was a time in my riding career that I, oh, it was raining, not getting on the bike. <laughs> it wasn't going <laughs> right. to happen right. because I hadn't mastered that yet. I hadn't gone outside my comfort zone to be like, oh, I can ride in the rain. I have to be much more cautious. I have to be much more thinking. I have to, you know, be much more aware of my surroundings. I have limited visibility. Can I still be comfortable? And only by pushing myself to ride in the rain does it allow me to actually become a better rider in the rain. Now, that being said, is I will almost never ride on the ice or when it's actively snowing. Right. Now, that just seems to be an unsafe risk that it's, for me is not worth it. Um, you know, once the roads are clear, even if it's cold, yes, I can ride. Um, because riding in the cold is something I've pushed myself to do. Mm. You know, I don't want to be just a, you know, beautiful blue skies and 72 degrees rider. You know, I want to, I want to learn how to ride in those other things because what might start out as a great ride might rain on my ride home. And I have to feel like I am competent to do that. So continuing to push yourself, you know, in other types of riding, other situations that are beyond your comfort zone, because the only way you get better so even though I might consider myself a proficient or competent rider, when it comes to rain, like I've been riding for five years and never rode in the rain. So <laughs> it wasn't until at that point, I'm like, I need to ride in the rain because rain is going to happen. And I'm not going to stop every time. So I had to get better at it. And only through that like intentional effort to become better, do I now like, you know, that I wish I had to ride in the rain? No, I would love blue skies and 72 degrees every day right. but that's not realistic and i'd rather ride and have the benefit versus worrying about you know will the weather impede my ability to actually have an enjoyable ride right that makes sense i guess while we're talking about you um i i know you've been deployed a number of times and that that comes with the you know, challenges the rest of us can't really imagine. And I know that your work probably exposes you to some pretty difficult stories um, that you then have to carry. And I'm wondering if riding is therapeutic for you too, even though you know what's going on in your head. Is this something that, that, is, that still has a healing effect for you? Absolutely. Riding is 
Yes. So it's something I'm both passionate about. It's something I find benefit in. Um, and the more I ride and the more I, you know, just sort of feel better after a ride. Yeah. It's still, even to this day, it's still beneficial. Like every time I get on or off my bike, or even if I wish I was on my bike for the day, you know, it still has a, some, some therapeutic value to me. Yes. Yeah. And really what I've learned is over the years of like all my deployments and all my years abroad, being in healthcare, I really get to have a, a sort of unique perspective of people because I'm treating people when they're sick. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the one thing I have found is that it really doesn't matter what language you speak, what religion you believe in. Um, there are good people and bad people everywhere. Parents cry over their kids when they're sick or injured. You know, people are just people, Mm. no matter where you are. And it might be a somewhat naive perspective, but, you know, just having, you know, traveled the world and you get to see people in their hometown, it's different than where I live, but it's, people are just people. And there are good and bad people everywhere. Yeah. It's funny how often um, I talk to people who do work that puts them in contact with the worst of humanity, um, how they're often the ones who, almost always the ones who say, you know, there's good people everywhere uh, and we're kind of more the same than we are different. I find that very heartening. I'm I, The one thing I, I was curious about when I asked you if writing was um, was therapeutic for you, believe it or not, is it is it dumb little detail, but um, it had to do with the character of the motorcycle. Now, you ride a Harley-Davidson, and I think of that as a bike that is talking to you all the time, um, that it's uh, it doesn't disappear under you in any way other than maybe, you know, from a physical comfort point of view. Um, is that part of the experience for you? Uh, yes. So for me, my, my riding has always been um, partly about comfort. And partly about enjoyment. Um, so having, like, even my very first bike, you know, a long time ago now, uh, had a fairing and windshield. So that that position, that comfort, that that ability to be like, hey, we're going to go away for the weekend. You know, that enjoyment that comes with that style of riding um, is something I enjoy. So that is that is part of my what I like to ride and how I like to ride. Yeah. And I've done plenty of long rides, you know, on a big, you know, Harley touring bike. Um, and I find it special, but it's just me. Yep. <laughs> well, what could be more subjective than a motorcycle? Um, you've done some iron butt stuff, right? Some, some kind of what I would consider ultra distance riding. Yeah. So uh, a few years ago, um, me and my brothers, my two younger brothers, we actually met in Sturgis and uh, I had to go back to work. So I intentionally did um, the thousand mile and 24 hour button burner and then the 1500. Um, I forget what it's called. I apologize. Mm. But it's so I basically in 36 hours, I rode from Sturgis, South Dakota, back to Washington, D.C. for, you know, is it and part of that is just the ability to say, like, can I do it? Can I, can I challenge myself? Can I push beyond my normal limits? Do I have to be comfortable at every time? You know, 
what am I what am I capable of as a writer? So yeah, so there are, there haven't been many. Um, I've done. I rode from Texas to DC one year. Uh, went to the Rolling Thunder, um, and about ten years ago, me and my wife rode from Alabama, and we did the three plane crashes from nine eleven. Oh wow! And we ended in New York City. And then rode home to Alabama. So me and my wife did that over like 10 days. And that's, a, again, a shared experience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, that must have been quite, that must have been quite emotional. Um, now, I know you, um, in Oklahoma, you've only been off the road for a few weeks, which I'm deeply jealous of. But uh, spring is coming. Any big plans for the season ahead? No. There's, there's nothing specific out there that's just, you know, calling um, my most of my family, uh, my immediate family, I'll live in Florida. So there'll probably be a, a trip there coming up, um, you know, just getting out and about with my friends, my club, you know, my wife, you know, just taking time to enjoy ourselves and, and relax and find ways to, you know, get out and meet other people because it's, there are interesting people everywhere you go. And, We've just had a great time with it. Yep. It sounds like on a ton of levels. Um, that's really inspiring. Joe, it's just been fascinating talking to you. Um, I'm so grateful that you suggested this topic. And, and, and it's given me a lot to think about before I write my, my, my closing comments, because it's hard not to personalize a subject like this. But I also want to say thank you for the important work that you do. Um, and I'm sure I echo the sentiments of, of lots of people listening to this. And also that I really hope you write that book. Well, thank you. Yeah, like it's it, it is one of those things I continue to work on. I think getting getting the narrative right, um, you know, history history is always told after the fact. Mm-hmm. But you know, at some point, you really want to correct history, you know, and, and provide other people's point of view to be like, oh, I really wouldn't have thought of it like that, and you know, being insightful and you know, allowing people that opportunity to, to gain the other the other point of view is important. In really any story, you want both sides of the story. Yeah, for sure. And certainly the motorcycle culture would benefit greatly from a, a more nuanced understanding of that story in particular. So um, I'll be first in line when, um, when it's on Amazon. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, you know, again, thank you and, uh, and ride safe out there. Thank you. You too as well, Bruce. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Have a great day. You too. just love it when an interview surprises me like this. Just the confirmation that riding motorcycles is good for us and can even be healing would have been worth our time, I think. And it was fascinating to learn that there's a scientific explanation for how it works. How the act of riding can create a separation between thoughts and emotions. Well, I could have dined out on that for years. But this, this was the thundering revelation for me. You can't access that benefit, or the bliss that comes with it, until you've achieved some mastery on the bike. Well, as we talked about that, I found myself recalling Freddie Spencer, calmly watching the flags waving in the stands so he could figure out who was behind him, all while at the very edge of control. And I thought about Kusala Bhikshu, 
comparing writing to meditation, and I felt like maybe I had a new understanding of all that. Well, it turns out that this sense of presence, this ability to be right here, right now, and free our minds to find some kind of equilibrium, well, it turns out we're earning it. It didn't come with the bike, or because we have a license, or even much depend on the kind of riding we do. It comes because we put the work in. And the better we get at it, well, the more it gives us in return. So now I can't wait to get back on my bike for another reason, a bigger and more urgent one, frankly. And it's so that I can keep trying to improve as a rider, so that I can get closer to this mastery, however long it takes, by whatever tiny increments, and for as long as I could physically do this. Because if there's even more of this bliss to be had, well, I'll do whatever it takes. Well, thanks for listening. You'll find show notes for this episode at thismotorcyclelife.com. That's also how you can reach me if you have questions, comments, or suggestions about the show. Emailing me at thismotorcyclelife at gmail.com works too, and I do love to hear your stories. You can also find me on Instagram, where I'm at thismotolife, and where you can find many of the people I've interviewed for this podcast. Well, for this episode's playlist recommendation, we return to Atlantic Canada, where some of this country's best music gets made. The artist is Juno Award-winning folk singer-songwriter Dave Gunning. I approached Dave with another track in mind, but when I told him what the episode was about, he suggested this one instead, saying simply, it's a good traveling song. Well, he was right. It's called All Along the Way. Well, you can buy it or stream it wherever you like to get your music. And in the meantime, keep staying alive out there. Is it right or is it wrong? I heard it in a rebel song. Question mark Spitting tails and open hearts I sunk my wheels in the dirt Got hung up on your every word Now I'm counting days to kill the time Till I'm back to what I 